to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I got to tell you something, people. My guest today, I remember a 14-year-old little Steve Cooper watching Happy Days. And Leather Tuscadero came on the screen and stole it. And she did a thing. She went, pow. And the next day, every kid in my school was going, pow. And I'm sure the teachers were like, would you please stop it? Because back then, when you were on a TV show... Everybody watched it, and she's a she's an icon. She's a rock and roll legend. She just had a great show at the Royal Albert Hall. She has a box set out. She has a book of poetry coming out. And my guest is the one and only Susie Quattro. How you doing, Susie? I'm doing fine. Thank you very much. You just brought it all back to me. Yeah, what a nice show that was to do. That was the decision I took. You know, because I was having hits all over the world, and they said, "Would you like to do this part?" I kind of went, "Hmm, good decision, good decision." Everybody loved that show. They loved the characters. So. It endeared me to a lot of people. Yeah, it's nice. Well, it's funny. I was at a little luau thing last night, and someone asked who's coming up on my show, and I said a few people coming up, but I mentioned you. And a girl, and I'm I'm 58, and she's got to be eight years younger than me. She knew exactly Leather Tuscadero, and she goes, oh, my God, we used to do that. And it's amazing that you stuck with the people's, that stuck in people's minds for over 40 years, and it just, it adds yeah. to your, your, your legend. Yeah, it's amazing. I'll tell you what the... Um... I found out years later, maybe two or three years later, when I stopped being in the show, I went back to say to see everybody at Paramount just to say hello and everything. And the secretary in the office, she said, I have something to tell you that nobody's told you. I said, what? She said, you got the second most fan mail after Henry. I went, I, I just went, what? That That surprised me. I didn't know that character was so popular. And when I went back in... Let me think what year it was. My 60th birthday, so that would have been 2010, no, 2020, whatever it was. Born at 250, you work it out. And I was at the hotel in Detroit. And somebody came by me, young girls about 16, 17, by the elevator. And they went, no, I'm I'm 60 at this point. They went, Leather Tuscadero, I went, I'll buy you a drink. I said, thank you for recognizing me. <laughs> I was amazed. Well, it's amazing. I'm looking, if people, this is this is all audio, but if you can't see this, people, but she has all these these gold records behind her. It's like it's like a Susie Quattro museum. Tell me, tell me about how you started, like, have you always collected them? Or, I mean, tell me how you just decided to put them in a certain room, because... A lot of times, I've talked to actors who have Emmys, and they're like, "Oh, they're they're you know, they're in my garage." I'm like, "But it's such an accomplishment." I I I would want to show it off. I have a plaque from when I was in college, and I put it on my wall. These are gold records. Tell me about them. I have. Um, this is my dining room, and my ex mentor, he's now passed away, Mickey Most. He used to have his gold discs in his dining room, and I guess I grew to like that. So when I got my first home. They went in that dining room, and then they came in this dining room. This is only the albums, she said, big-headedly. Not really at all, but just like, oh, my God. This is the albums in this room. Singles are in the office. And um, I got in this business for a lifetime, and I knew it from day one. So I never came in just, you know, I, I knew that I was going to be at 71 now and still be doing what I do. It's now 59, nearly 60 years in, and I've always collected everything. I, I used to keep um, hotel room keys <laughs> back in back in the early 60s. And once I got a, a waste paper basket full of these hotel keys, and each one 
each single room had a uh, a memory for me. I got fed up with doing it. And I dumped them all in a mailbox. I wonder if they they would have caught me. They would have killed me. But I have an ego room in my home. Um, it's on the third floor, and it's it's it. I always like telling this story because it's like an analogy, but it's true. So you go up. It's a very 15th century Elizabethan manor house. So nothing is straight in this house. The walls, the floors, the only thing straight is me. So you go up two flights of stairs on the third floor, and the walls are like this. And you kind of, you can bang your head, and you have to watch your space. And you finally get to a big, a big heavy wooden door, the big room. And on the door, I had a little plaque, and it says "Ego Room." Mind your head. <laughs> And you go in, and the first thing you see is the big red book from the famous television show, This Is Your Life. And it, it is my life. So up there is everything. Every space is covered with pictures, posters, awards. There's clothes down there. There's bass guitars. There's videos. There's CDs. There's um, scrapbooks. There's everything Susie. And the important thing is, is you can go in there, and it's the quietest room in the house, which is amazing. And you can go in there and just enjoy and then you come out and you shut the door. And that's how I live my life. There's a space for that. Come out, shut the door, come downstairs, back down to earth. That's awesome. Now, now you said, just you said a little in the beginning of that, telling me that story, that you knew from when you started, this was going to be your lifetime. How did you know that? Because so many people change careers. So many people leave. How did you know? Because you're at a young age. I mean, how did you know this Years later, you'd still be rocking and rolling and still people still be loving you. How did you know that? Well, I have to go with two little quick stories. Um, I first, at five and a half, and none of this is bullshit. This is the exact truth. Five and a half, we were watching the, as you must know, the Ed Sullivan Show. Every American family would stop on a Sunday, eight o'clock. It doesn't matter how old the kids were. We all sat and watched this variety show. And at the end of the show, he always used to bring out something for the youngsters, he used to say. So this particular time we brought on Elvis, and I'm five and a half, and Elvis starts to do Don't Be Cruel. And my elder sister, by nine years, so she's 14 and a half, she starts to scream. And I, being so young, I turned to her and went, what's the matter with you? Why are you, why are you, I didn't, didn't get it. Then I turned back to the TV and I went, I never forget it like it was yesterday. I went into the TV and a little light bulb went on on top of my head at five and a half. And the thought that went through my brain was, I'm going to do that. And it stayed with me. And then flash forward to 1964, formed our first band. And we got up to do our first gig. We knew three songs. And I remember again, light bulb moment. I stood on that stage bass in hand, ready to sing the first song, and in my brain went, I'm home. Wow. Now, these are pivotal moments you don't forget. I'm home, and I was home, and I knew it, and I've never changed jobs. I've done many things in the profession. You know, I've had a huge career, but um, I knew that entertainment, creativity, communication, this is, that's who I am. Now, you're young, you're on the bass. It's not like you can sit there and there's a ton of women bass players. It's not like, you know, you're like, today people can go, or this. You're in Detroit. So, 
what was your course of action? I mean, you because you had this such you knew at a very young age, but when you're you know five, eleven, fourteen, you're not saying, okay, well, I'm going to go to LA now because your parents will go, no, you aren't. You're living in their house. What was your course of action at a young age? I mean, how did you start this ball rolling? Uh, well, we had again. I have to say the Ed Sullivan Show again. We had, we were watching it in '64, and um, that was when the idea came up. As soon as the Beatles were done playing on the TV show. We all got on the phones and everybody, we, had, we called two sister friends of ours and another girl who lived down the road whose father was in my dad's band. So it's all interrelated. And we decided on this phone call, being excited over the Beatles to start a band, which we did. Uh, everybody took an instrument and I, for once, didn't speak up quick enough, which is unlike me. I already played percussion and piano, property, schooled. And I said, hey, 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 what am I playing? And my elder sister said, you're going to play the bass. I said, okay. So not even questioning it, because I didn't. Even when I saw Elvis and thought I'm going to do that, I didn't think I'm a girl. I just said, that's what I'm going to do. So I've always been a non-gender, aware that I'm a girl, but non-gender in my approach to, the, to my job. And I went to my dad, who's been a musician all his life, and I said, uh, we're starting an all-girl band. Do you have a bass? And he said, sure, because we had five kids in the family we all played minimum three instruments each it wasn't a big deal nothing to brag about this is how we grew up okay um so he said uh, yeah 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 sure i got a bass and he brought out he gave me an, and i love saying this because when i tell musicians this i see their interest in my story turn to green and they want to hit me because <laughs> i'm 14 and i asked my dad for a bass and he gives me from my first bass guitar, a 1957 Precision. <laughs> I see the cut going. So I didn't know that this was the biggest neck, the heaviest bass. I didn't know this. All I knew was my dad gave me the space to learn. So I learned it. I learned it. And consequently, because I learned on the Rolls Royce of bass guitars, electric speaking, and the hardest to play, which I didn't know, I didn't know there was an option for a smaller neck or a, a lighter one. I didn't ask. I said, Dad, do you have a bass? Yes, I do. Here you go. So that's what I played. And consequently, I became a very, very good bass player because, because I learned on the best and the hardest. Well, I was thinking that, but also because you were you were already trained as a, as a piano player, so you had that musical background, and you had it because your father was a musician, so you had it in your blood. I didn't. My dad was a saxophone player. My brother played the drums and my sister played the cellos. I suck on every instrument. I can't play anything. It should be in my blood. I can't play anything. <laughs> but, but you had it in your blood. And, and I guess that's what made you a really good bass player because you didn't have that off school. A lot of people would probably look at it and go, oh, I can't. This is too big for me. But you were just like, my dad gave me it. I'm going to just crush it. So it must have been sure. great for you. I mean, so so when did you start really, did your band start getting some, you know, gigs and speed back then? Uh, we were lucky in the fact that we were an all-girl band, so being unique. So we got the majority of the gigs. We worked where a lot of the guy bands didn't because the club owners, we got stuck. Actually, though, I mean, that was a double-edged sword because although we worked all the time, we got kind of stuck in that club land scenario, you know, dress the girls in the little, in the little mini skirts and bring the customers in. But that, that's okay. We were still learning our craft. That was okay. Um we did uh, from 64 up until 1971. We start, We did the club circuit and we did five shows a night, 
five shows a night, 45 minutes on, 15 minutes off. Uh, I learned my craft. I was the front person immediately. And I tell a funny story. Back in the early days, 65, 66, we couldn't afford a roadie, of course. And my eldest sister's first husband out of seven was managing the band. Don't even ask about that. Um, don't even ask. I don't know if people go, what? Anyway, he was managing the band, and we were setting up all the girls. We used to carry everything in, help set up, and he would do the light show and do the mixing. And it's about maybe two years down the road that we've been in the band, and we were doing very well on the club circuit. And I remember we're setting up the equipment, and he looked up at everybody, and he said, now you guys realize, all you guys in the band, you realize that all the lights have to go on Susie. I went. <laughs> So what that story illustrates is that the audience kind of decides for you who that front person is. And you actually don't have to do anything about it. I, I'm just being me. And then it was just obvious that that's the focal point. So, and, and I learned that back in when I was seven, eight years old, when we used to get up and do the family shows, all five kids. Maybe somebody played the piano. Maybe somebody does a little dance step. Maybe somebody tells a joke, whatever. Everybody does a party piece. And I noticed that when I got up to do my party piece, whatever it may be, the whole room would stop and watch. So in your little brain, you think, oh, in your childish brain, you think, oh, I can do this. So you start to develop your craft, your, your craft very, very early that you can actually hold an audience. That's what it's all about. Now, because you were chosen to be the front person, and I know that's a lot of pressure. I mean, because, you know, not to you because you've been doing it your whole life, but other people, you know, that psychs them up. Was there any resentment towards you from the other band? Because it's it's one of those things where it's like, okay, here's Susie, and your older sister was in the band, so there, here's my little sister. You know, you always think, wait a second, it's my little sister. Did you feel any resentment? Did it cause any rifts between the band and you? Um... There's always going to be a little bit of that if you're honest. And maybe if the shoe was on the other foot, I would feel that too. You know, it's natural. Uh, I think as far as the older sister goes, yes, she still has resentment to this day, but she's not a dummy. So she knows that this is how it had to be. So she does recognize that I'm the front person. She knew this from a very early age. So although she resented it, she didn't argue with it. You know what I mean? So she, she could have said, no, she's not doing all the songs and other like She didn't say that. So it shows acceptance. Yes, we send them, but acceptance. So you can't change that. You are who you are. You know, you, I can't pretend to be somebody else. That's who I am. Now, how did you end up in England? Early in your career, you ended up going to England. How did that happen? Uh, I was in the all band, and the all band had changed from the Pleasure Seekers to Cradle, which was the second wave of the band. And that was when we started doing more festivals and stuff. We'd done one festival for my brother doing my club act, our, our club act, and uh, we didn't go down good. We died. And we decided after that that we had been stuck into club land scenario and the whole world had changed and it was hippies and tie-dye T-shirts and barefoot and jamming. And so we didn't fit in. So we decided to, it was decided, I didn't decide, it was decided to change the band and become heavier and jam and write our own stuff. And we brought my little sister in, who was of that generation big time, to sing lead. So I took a little bit of a back seat and for about 18 months, 
I only did maybe three or four songs and I mainly was the bass player. I did mainly bass, sometimes keyboards and sometimes drums because I, I was multi-instrumental. And it was this band that Mickey Most saw in Detroit. And it was the second person in one week, first Electra Records saw this band with me at the back, coming up for a few songs going back. And Electra Records had offered me a solo contract. And that same week, Mickey Most came to Detroit with Jeff Beck. And he also saw the same band, also offered me a solo contract. So my turn to leave. Jack Holstrom wanted to make me into the next Janis Joplin and Mickey Most wanted to take me to England and make me into the first Susie Quattro. So see that really that really says something about your about you that you believed in yourself because a lot of people yeah. would be like, Hey, I'll, oh well the next Janis Joplin, but it says for one, it's it shows that you have integrity. Two, it's just you had did you have any fear a little bit? Because you here it's this is a shore road. The Janis Joplin's a shore road. The Susie Quattro, you know you can do it, but did you have any fear when you went over there? Were you a little hesitant, or what was what was going through? Um, you never can predict what's going to happen, but I have stubbornly stuck to who I am. And there were times when I was in England, when I was on my own, left everybody, solo contract, okay, big mouth, you know, here you are. And I used to cry myself to sleep because I was lonely. And then in the cold light of day, I'd say, okay, sitting in England by myself, okay, haven't got a band, haven't got a pot to piss in, just my contract. And I think, okay, how do you feel about this? So maybe you should change and be like that, or maybe you should change and be like that. Girl. And every time I'd have a conversation with myself and I'd say, no, no, I'm different. I know I'm different. And the truth is, it was when I was growing up as well. If you haven't got a... This is my message to everybody. If you haven't got a niche that you fit in naturally, okay, and there are a lot of people like that, you just don't fit in. You just don't fit in. If you haven't got a niche to fit into, your only choice is to find your niche and thereby you create something new. And this is what I did. So yes, self-belief. And no, I was never going to be the next Janice Joplin. No, thank you. I'm me. That's what I believed in, that what I had was unique. By hell or high water, even if I didn't make it, at least I would go out trying and I would go out being myself. Now, when you were doing that in England, how did you start putting your music together? What was your game plan? Because it always fascinates me how, you know, people now don't understand that, you know, getting a record deal is not like it used to be. And, and I know I believe you self-produced your first record. What was it, I mean, release, what was it like, what was your grind to get that first record done? for your solo record? Was it a lot of hard work or were ideas flowing to you? Or what? take me back to what was happening. We were, M Mickey's original plan was to bring me over for three months to the UK, make a record, hopefully have a successful send me back to Detroit. Didn't work that way. Things took a lot more time. Um, Mickey was floundering because although we had the absolute talent to spot me and know that I was different, he didn't know how to put me on record. So a little bit of floundering there, and I wasn't quite sure who I was. All I knew was I was trying to find out who I was, um, and he was trying to find out who I was. Nothing was really gelling. We were in the studio using really good musicians, me on the bass. And finally, I remember this is a pivotal point. I said to Mickey after about a year, I said, I'm, I'm going crazy here. I'm, I'm in a band. I'm a band person. 
you got me alone in that hotel room, coming in and recording, writing songs. I don't know who I am anymore. Can I get a band? He said, okay. So I got a band together. And then everything started to gel. So then you've got the pleasure seekers, all those years together, cradle that frustration of not being up front, the added frustration of being in England with my big contract and nothing happening, then forming a band. So all that frustration leading up to the peak of creativity. We started to do all my own songs. Now we're finding a, a space and a, and a thing that Susie and I found, I'm relating to the guys in the band, we're doing rock, we're doing boogie. It's all making sense. Um, Mickey then put me, this is before I had success, on the tour with uh, Slade. And I was the opening act. So it was Slade was the headliner, then Thin Lizzy, and then me. I had 15 minutes. We did a month and a half with them all over the UK. And by the time we came back from that tour, I was formed. Okay. I was formed. The band was the band. We're doing my own stuff. We had a sound. We had a look. We, I had an attitude. Then I was Susie Quattro. Susie Quattro came out of the ashes of everything I'd been through. And Mickey said to me that he had signed these two very good singles writers, Nikki Chin and Mike Chapman. And even though I had a contract that I did everything my own, he said, would you mind if they came and watched a show and tried to craft a three-minute single for you? And I said, mm, that would be stupid to say no. I said, no. So they came and watched the show and everything I was, a lot of stuff was boogie based. That's what I was. And they, they saw the show and they went away that night. They wrote Can the Can. And when we heard Can the Can down the basement in the rehearsal, everybody loved it. I mean, Mike did this awful demo because that was, I love him. He just a screeching guitarist and screaming into the mic. But we took it all apart and the band put it together. The drums, the guitar, the bass, every, everything fit in together. And I, I knew that we had found we found who I am in that one song. It just crystallized. Everything made sense. Boom. Like a big jigsaw puzzle. So once you find out who you are, and it sure gives you confidence. I mean, it's like anything. You, you're, you are the Susie Quattro now. How, how do they start marketing you? How does your career go from there? What's the plan? You know, do we send her here? Do we do this? Do we have her open a tour? Do we have her headline small clubs? What were the steps that really embraced that Susie Quattro, which you are and became back then? There's a series of things. Uh, so we've, we've recorded that particular song. Mickey heard it, brought it to the studio. I brought it to the company and Mickey heard it in the office. And he, he turned to me and he said, uh, this is going to be a number one for you. He knew it. You know, Mickey most had a million hits himself. Going to be a number one. Now, it's image time, important stuff. And he said, uh, what do you want to wear? I said, leather. He said, no. I said, yes. He said, no. I said, yes. He said, no. And, and finally, he said to me, uh, it's old fashioned and everybody's done it. I said, I haven't done it. And he went, okay. And he gave in. He said, okay, okay, okay. Leather it is. I was determined because of Elvis again. And then he said, uh, he waited for a minute and then he said, what about a jumpsuit? And I thought, what a good idea that is because I bounce all over the stage and everything will stay in place. Me being very naive sometimes, I can be very, very green. I didn't know that that was a sexy choice. I just thought it was a sensible choice. And, and the big piece of the jigsaw puzzle was I'm standing with my band 
in the photo studio. Mickey's arranged for a big photo session for the image photos. And uh, they're playing, I'm in my first drum suit. They're playing the record in the background. The band are lying at my feet as per picture because Susie's in charge. And the, the great photographer, good friend of mine, Gerd Mankiewicz, he's behind over here with the camera. Music's in the back, I'm standing like this. And he said to me, okay, give me that Susie Quattro look. <laughs> and to be quite honest, until that moment in time, I didn't know I had a Susie Quattro look, but I did. And I went into a pose and it's the iconic shot you've seen so many times on the cover of my documentary, Susie Q. That, that's what happened. He said, then I went, ah, boom. And I went into it. It's funny how everything finally just meets up and I knew who I was. There I was, there was Susie Quattro. Now, what is it like when you start becoming popular? I know you, you're huge in Europe. I mean, what was that like for you? Because you, if you think about it, you've been ready for that since you were five or six in front of the family. So you knew there was something different than you. When you had the light go in your head, you knew this was your destiny. You pretty much, I mean, back then you're... I did. Thing. But what is it like when you start becoming famous? And, you know, and it's it's... You know, you're Susie Quattro, and it's not just like, you know, people expect Susie Quattro. You can be the nicest person in the world, but if they see you with the leather and you're badass, that's what they expect from you. And you're like, well, wait a second. I mean, you you have attitude, which is good, but you don't want you don't want to be a jerk. You know what I mean? So, what was it like when you like? What were people's can how they conceive uh, conceive not conceive? I can't think of the word. You when they meet you, what would they? What was their perception when they would meet you, and how did you deal with that? Um. I've always been able to, okay, first of all, my aim was to be known, but also to be normal within that as much as I could. And I pretty much achieved that. Um, I've never been the kind to think that because I've been lucky enough to be successful at my chosen profession does not make me better than anybody else. That's always been my attitude. Yes, I'm successful, but I'm not better than you. Always felt like that. Uh, also, I made the decision very early on to not hide. So, you know, there comes a point when you first go out the door and there's, ah! so you can either take that to heart and walk around with sunglasses and a baseball cap on, or you can walk around like you, let people see you and react accordingly. That's the, the venue I chose. Um, I do separate kind of, not completely. There is, well, my autobiography, Unzipped, that explains it. I wrote Unzipped in two people. And it's little Susie from Detroit and Susie Quattro. And although they're both me, it's both different sides of me. So I do have an area that's Susie Quattro and I do have little Susie from Detroit. And you must always keep both things alive. You know, I'm, I'm a professional. Uh, I won't... I won't act the part, let's put it that way. I become the part when it's necessary. I don't act it, I become it. And I try to always give an audience what they expect of me. Now, do you remember the first time you heard yourself on the radio? Yeah. 
Tell me, because I always, I always it's, everyone has different stories. Like some people say I was driving down Sunset Boulevard. Some people go, I don't know. Some people say I was, I was at my friend's house drinking beer. Tell me about the first time, because I think as a musician, that must be such a, and and radio was so big back then. I, I always try to explain to younger people, like TV was so big and radio was so big. I remember as a kid driving in my parents' car and, you know, I hear Sweet Caroline or, and you just remember, and I still remember those times as a kid, but if you're an artist and you actually hear yourself on the radio, tell me yeah, about it's it. Pretty, pretty am- it is pretty amazing. Um, I don't know if I heard any pleasure seek. I didn't think any pleasure seeker stuff on the radio. Might have heard a little bit in Detroit, one of the live gigs we did, but really the first time I really hurt myself with Susie Quattro was my first single, which went to number one in Portugal called Rolling Stone. Never went anywhere else but Portugal. And I remember I was swimming at a London swimming pool that you could go up on the top floor and swim. And that came on the on the radio and I nearly died. I nearly died. But flashing on the, with the can, the can, I'm the kind. I could be in a car and it comes on the radio. I've done this many times. And I will roll down the window and say to who's ever next to me, I'm on the radio. So, <laughs> that's little Susie saying, hey, Susie Quattro's on the radio. You know? <laughs> I get a big feel about it. It is quite something. It is quite something to hear yourself. And I, I realized as well as I heard myself speaking on the radio, they had a really, really, really good radio voice. And in fact, I've been 15 years on BBC Radio too. So I, I, I would recognize in myself when I heard interviews coming back that I just have a good radio voice. Now, your career's going along. How did Happy Days come about? That's what I'm going to know. Because it's just, I mean, it's not, it's just random. You just showed up and everyone was like, oh, who is that? I mean, like the young kids, we didn't know because, you know, we don't wasn't we weren't you know into your music at a young age you know we didn't really hear it how did it come about i mean and did you think that you would just be like we love her like you know because i i was i was so funny in that pal i mean that's legendary i was in uh japan on tour i toured there all the time i did maybe 15 tours all together and big big star in japan they even named Asaki after me great great place everything fits me too um I was there doing a tour and my publicist from America called and he said, there's this show going on and it's a big show. And I hadn't seen it because I hadn't been back to America for about a year. And he said, uh, and they want you to audition for a role and they want you to fly out. And I went, oh, and he said, believe me, it's a cool show. You want to do it. So I said, okay. So I flew from LA to, from uh, Tokyo to LA and I got to the set and I had my street leathers on. Because I wore leather all the time. And the producer came up to me, Gary Marshall, and he said, oh, nice to meet you. Thank you for coming in. He said, "Uh, it's very clever of you to dress in the part. And I said, what the hell are you talking about? What do you mean dress in the part? This is me. He said, well, she's called Leather Tuscadero. I said, well, that's good luck for you then, isn't it? You know, so anyway, we went on from there. Uh, I auditioned for the role. And then they called me and I had the role for three seasons. They wanted 15 episodes altogether, which is great, five per year. Uh, good decision. I'm still good friends with Henry, still good friends with Ron. I asked Ron not that long ago, so we emailed a lot. I said, uh, I was curious. I said, because that was my first acting job. And I asked him, I said, okay, you're, you're a very famous director. And I said, did I ever, when I joined the show, did I look like a brand new actress? And he said, no. 
surprised. And did it feel like I had just joined the cast as a new member? He said, no. That's the strangest thing about it. It felt like you'd been there from the beginning. I think a lot of people have said that to me. You didn't go, oh, it just kind of like, I was just there, wasn't I? I was in there. It felt natural. That's what I'm saying. It felt natural for me to be there. And I'm sure it was easy for you because, as you said, you were huge in Japan. You've been on stage. For you, I mean, in all honesty, I've acted. I've never been a musician. But playing in front of a full house and keeping them entertained is a lot easier than walking on on set. I mean, you already have it in you. So, I mean, for you, it probably became second nature. I know Anson Williams, I interviewed Anson a few weeks ago. He was also a musician. So I think it was also easy for him. So it must have been easy for you to sort of like see like, and you, you had the, and it was you. I mean, that character was, they wrote it well, for you not I, knowing you really. I did put a lot of myself in there because when they showed me what the part was, I went, okay, I can use the young Susie in this, you know, my 14 year old coming out, you know, I could use that. Um, I was, I'm not going to pretend I wasn't nervous because I haven't acted before. And all of a sudden, I'm walking out on stage in a top TV show, acting, playing a role, doing something I'd never done before. I was a little bit nervous. So I was standing backstage waiting to make my entrance. Full house, audience are there. And Henry came back. I'm never, I love him for this, actually. It was a smart move. Came back. I'm waiting to go through the door of Arnold's. And he said, you okay? I said, yeah. He said, you sure okay? I said, I'm a little bit nervous, Henry. He said, you're going to kill him, Susie. You're going to kill him. You're on. So I went out the door. And I sauntered up to my spot to speak to the camera. And I think I'm doing this leather tuscadero. Really cool, really cool. And just as I went to speak my first line in front of an audience, the director said, excuse me, Miss Quattro. I went, you're like somebody threw water on me. I said, what? He said, what are you doing out here? I said, well, I'm, that was my cue. And I'm, he said, no, you have another page. I went, fine. So I went back in. And when I got back to behind the set again, where the door to Arnold's is, Henry was on the floor crying with laughter. <laughs> so he'd actually done it on purpose. And he said to me, now go out and kill him. Now, what more can you do wrong? And he's right. What more could I do to come out on the wrong cue? You know. <laughs> now, did you do the pal or was that written for you? The I do the what? Pow. Oh, oh, that was a decision. Um, kind of a bit of both. They were kept saying we need a bit. They call it a bit of business. We need a bit of business for you. So we were trying to find something, and and somebody went here, and I went and it just kind of happened. It just kind of happened. To tell you the truth, a few people had some ideas, and that one just went, yeah, and it, it worked. You know, I wanted to do that, but no. Yeah. <laughs> Now, now, when the show becomes a hit, how does it affect your career in America and across? I mean, because America has such a huge crowd thing. How did it affect your uh, career? Well, it gave me a second lease of life all over the world. All over the world, it was, oh, my God, Susie Quartus had all these millions of sellers, and now she's in a TV show, too. So it was a, that kind of bonus. In America, they discovered Susie Quattro with the leather Tuscadero, which is nuts. But they did. But it affected my career with nothing but good. It pushed me into a different level. So I'm really happy that I took that decision. It was one of one of the best decisions I made. Now, you've been performing for so long. And I, I want to talk about, you performed at Royal Albert, Albert Hall a few, uh, last month. Had you performed there before? Was that your first concert, like headlining it? Or, because it's a legendary place. 
It is legendary. I have played there before. I've done TV shows there before, various big bills. But that's the first time I played my solo show. I was on stage for two and a half hours. Um, it's probably the most nerve-wracking and best gig of my entire 59-year-long career. It was brilliant. It was. I was high for five days after that show. I couldn't come down. Now, it was coming after a time, you know, the pandemic, so people weren't really seeing live music. What was it like? I mean, when, you know, were you, were you nervous? Because, you know, you said you haven't come down for the high, and we all know you get the pre, I used to do stand-up comedy, and you get the pre-show, the energy. You're, you have that nervousness, but you use it to your advantage. What was it like when you popped out on the stage? Was it just like you felt a rush onto your head, or how was it? Um... I'm not a nervous person, I'm an edge person, and I don't know if you call that stage nerves. What I get, and always have done, is just before I go out, I stand on the side and I'm ready to go take that step into the footlights. And always through my brain, it doesn't matter if the night before I just absolutely killed them. Still my brain, just before I go out, says, oh, I hope they like me tonight. So you get a little bit unsure, which is nice. And then you do that stride out there. So. As I strode out there, I just, I was up. I was up. Everything was natural. You know, I couldn't do enough. I wanted to make every single person in that place smile. And it was like that. We were like connected. We were connected. I sound like Spinal Tap. The audience connects to the people. But, but it did happen. We did connect. What a show. What a show. It was great. Why two and a half hours? Were you prepared for that, or were they just asking you for more? Did you, I mean, because it's something I always love when I see a long concert. But a lot of times now, people expect an hour and 45 minutes. But two and a half hours, I mean, that's, you're getting your money's worth. You, get, you get a lot of Susie Quattro. No one's yeah, going to bitch do. about that. I've been doing these uh, solo shows now for about six, seven years now. And it's what I've always wanted to become all the years I've been working. I wanted to be able to do my solo shows with an interval without anybody telling me the timing and just take you through my whole life from beginning to the end. And that's what I did. So you had, uh, yeah, I mean, I could have gone for another three hours. I wouldn't have been tired. So you get, you get the whole rainbow. I play the piano. I play the drums. I do a little bit of talking. You get some pictures. You get my life on that stage. And for me, you can't beat it. I'm an entertainer. At the end of the day, I'm an entertainer. Well, you're also a poet. I want to hear about this book because it's volume two. So has your, this is going to be a question I want, I'm just wondering, and it, it probably they coincide with each other. Were you a poet first or a songwriter first? That's a good question. I think at the heart of me, I've always been an entertainer first and second, a poet. I've always been a poet. My first book, I started I started the poems when I was seven or eight years old. My mother brought me over a poem that's in my first book, Through My Eyes. The second one is called Through My Heart. Uh, I'd written it when I was 10 and put it on a big, with a drawing and written out. And she saved it all these years. And she brought it over on her last trip here before she passed away. I was 10. And it was called The Depression of a Rock and Roll Star. Where did that come from? So th that's the answer to your question. So yeah, always a little bit, a little bit strange that way. I've I've always been a word person. I've always been that, you know. And the second book just, just I couldn't stop. 
for the past two years at midnight, I get my laptop out and I can't stop writing. This is really near the knuckle. This book is very naked, as good poetry should be. So when you write poetry, what are you, how do you look at both? When you write a song and you write a poem, where is your mindset at? Is it the same and then sometimes they intersect? Or, or do you know you have definite boundaries where this is a poet, this is a song? I have no boundaries. Creation has no boundaries. None. Um, and it's illustrated in the first poetry book and it's illustrated in the second. There are stuff that, things that you write and you think, oh, great song, and it never ends up in a song. And you think, oh, this is just a poem. Or you do a poem, this has happened several times in my life, it's just a great poem. And you're writing and you're writing and you're writing and you're looking through different lyrics and you you find these lyrics and you think, oh, that's a good poem. That, uh, and then it becomes a song. And I have in the first book where the poem is the poem and then see how the meter changes when it becomes a song. So this does happen. And there are, there are like I said, there are stuff that you, you think are poems that are only songs and then vice versa. So I never know where it's going until it's, I mean, for instance, I'll give you a real good for instance. Um, on The Devil in Me, my current album, and then I've, I've got to go in five minutes if that's okay with you. Okay. The Devil in Me, uh, which is my current album. I had said that phrase to my son who I've been working with for two albums now. And he said, oh, that's a great title. Write that down. I wrote it down. So we're, we're working on this current album. We're, you know, during the lockdown, we're writing and we're in the studio. And I kept trying to put these little lyrics that I'd written to a song, The Devil in Me. I couldn't, I couldn't find it. It just wouldn't happen. So I stuck it in my book and I think, okay, maybe this is just volume two of my poetry. Maybe that's what it is. So anyway, my song, we're on the last song of the album. And my son said, Mama, this is the last one that we're done. We have enough songs. I'm gonna, what do you think of this riff? I said, oh, that's really good. I like that. Send it to my computer. So he did. So then I, the next process is I go into the computer with my acoustic bass and I get my songbook out. And I start flicking through, playing, flicking through, listening, playing. And a lyric or a title or even something new will just jump out at you. So I'm, I'm flicking through, playing along, flicking through. And all of a sudden, the lyrics, what I thought were lyrics, that I thought would be a poem of the devil in me, fell out of my book and landed face up on the computer keyboard. I went, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and it's all about my mom, who is since gone. She used to say to me, um, you're an angel until your halo slips and it becomes a noose. And she always said this to me. And it was like she plucked that out and boom, boom. So what I thought then was only going to be a poem, and it was immediate. It fell onto my keyboard. I went, okay, I believe in stuff like that. Started to play, started to sing. No brainer. The lyrics that I'd written that I thought were lyrics in the first place that I couldn't find a song to, they went bang onto the song. So creation is quite a magical process. Well, I know you say you have to go, so I have one final question for you. Okay. What is the future of Susie Quattro? What's coming the up? Future, the future is everything I wish myself. I've got an EP coming out in America of my uh, six favorite rock covers. And that's preceding the duet album that comes out next year with Katie Tunstall. We did an album together. 
wrote everything. It's a fantastic album. I've got my next album I'm working on, <clears throat> my book of poetry. <clears throat> Excuse me, May 30th. God, that's two days. Uh, lots of gigs. I don't want to set myself a goal because then what happens when I reach it? Do I drop dead? You know, <laughs> I'm just going to keep going. Well, I'm just going to keep Well, I want to thank you for coming on, Susie. People go to uh, Susie's website, susiequattro.com. Uh, all her information is there. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 900 episodes there. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Twitter, I'm at coopertalk. Instagram, I'm at coopertalk1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vitamins, take your vegetables. I said that wrong. And I'll see you guys next time.